On one Saturday, when we were in our house in Louisiana before we had children, I had gotten up early to work in the yard before the sun came out because you needed to do all your yard work before the sun came out, otherwise you'd die of a heat stroke. And so I was out doing yard work and I'd finished my yard work, I came back in to take a shower, Tabby was still in bed, and got done and I decided that I would play a prank. And so I went and I hid in our closet and she got up a few minutes later, she started searching and she went to the kitchen I can imagine, I guess, because I wasn't there. She went in the den. I heard her call outside. She went outside to the driveway and looked down the street. Nothing was moving. It was a very eerie thing that she said. Came back in, and she was frantic. And she was like, dear God, have you come and I've been left behind? <laughs> to which I sneaked out and scared her. And never, you know, I've never been able to live it down. And in that moment, I was like, you really thought in that moment that you had been left behind? You should be right, woman. Why do you not know the Lord Jesus? We have a lot of fun in our marriage. A lot of fun in games like that where we sneak up on each other, play with each other just to have fun in the moment. And that's great, and I encourage you to do that. But there's other things that are fun, that aren't really something that we would laugh about. And that is what we talk about this morning when we look in Genesis chapter 4 about sin. Sin, according to Genesis chapter 4 verses 6 and 7, is crouching at the door. It is hiding at the door, stooping down at the door, waiting to present itself so that it can have control over us. It's like me in the closet waiting to crouch and jump out and surprise you, except the storyline doesn't end with a laugh, and the storyline doesn't end with joy. The storyline ends in death, because the wages or the payment of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life. Sin crouches at our door. And you say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. Sin doesn't crouch at my door anymore. You need to check to see what's at your door. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to have a lot more sin crouch at your door. And you'll be aware of a lot more sin around you than you ever were when you were a tool of the devil. Sin crouches at our door, and the Bible says not only there in Genesis, but it also says in 1 Peter that sin is like a prowling lion looking for someone to devour, or rather the devil is like a prowling lion looking for someone to devour, and the Bible says to resist him, standing firm in your faith. The Genesis chapter 4, where God is dealing with Cain and Abel. Now, we know the story. Cain and Abel. Cain ends up killing Abel because of a jealousy dispute. The rule was that they would give their first fruits of harvest back to God. And so Cain and Abel are trying to divide up amongst themselves their, what they're going to give to God. Now Abel offers up his first fruit and God receives his offering as a very good thing. God looks at, at Abel with affection with devotion God looks at Abel as a cheerful giver and he appreciates what Abel has offered 
But Cain didn't give God his best or his first. He basically gave God the leftovers. And so God was not pleased with Cain. And so this rivalry ensues. And God says here in verse 6, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, then you will, will you not be accepted. But if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. But as the story goes on, Cain and Abel go out. And Cain kills Abel because his anger burned. The sin that crouched at the door that was seeking and desired him became visualized and affected in his life. It affected his whole composure to the point that he would commit murder. Every time you and I are dealing with sin, sin's ultimate purpose, its desire, is to have us. And the Bible says here that you and I are to master it. And otherwise, you and I are to make sure that we stand in control of what's going on. Sin crouches at the doorstep waiting to have its way with us. Sin wants to destroy every relationship that we have. Sin wants to destroy our marriages. Sin wants to destroy our relationship with our children. Sin desires to destroy our relationship with our co-workers. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, sin wants to creep up in the midst of his church and destroy it as well. As I have said, there is, there is nothing more important to the body of Christ than the unity of of the body. Anytime you have a church where things are going great and God is moving, you can expect the devil to show himself and you can expect the devil to rear his ugly head either in public or in private because really it makes no difference. He is ravaging heck and war on the people in our culture, in our church, in our community because the devil desires to have his way with us. God's counsel to us is to master it before it gets to us. You and I will not defeat sin. We will not defeat the enemy by ignoring him. You and I will not defeat the enemy by sweeping him under the welcome mat at the front door. You and I will defeat the enemy when we stand solid on God's word, in God's word, for Christ, in Christ, and use ourselves as a vessel to which God can pour himself into us. You and I reach our greatest purpose when we're used by God to stand for him despite the sin that's in the nooks and the crannies creeping at the door. Now, for each of us, that sin represents different things. For some of us, it might be gluttony. For others of, others of us, it might be lust. For others of us, it might be any a number of things, addictions or whatnot. It doesn't really matter what the sin is. The, per, the point is, as you think about your walk with Christ today, and as you think about, I want you to picture yourself standing in a doorway, and I want you to picture on the other side of that door, sin. Whatever sin is, is, is taking or zapping your life out of, out, of, out of your soul today, I want you to name it and claim it for Christ. I want you to be able to say, this is the sin that's crouching at my door. You need to know what you're dealing with if you're going to defeat it. 
You also need to know who is going to deal with it in order to defeat it. You need to know the Lord. You need to surrender it to the Lord. You need to trust in the Lord. Even when you can't, God can. You may say, well, this sin in particular that's crouching on my door, I've given into it so many times. In fact, in so many ways, you could say I'm defined by it. It doesn't mean that you have to be. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have its way with you. And God says to you, as he said to Cain so many generations ago, you must master it. Sin, that three-lettered word, causes more problems than any other word that can be thought or imagined. Any, any other word in the dictionary. It separates husband and wife. It separates siblings, friends, church members, parents, children, co-workers, Christians. It is divisive. It lurks and searches for a victim. And James chapter 1 verse 14 says, Each of us is tempted when we are dragged away by our own evil desire and enticed. And after the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, births death. So you and I have to decide what we're going to do about the sin crouching at our door. Imagining it to go away is not going to work. Thinking that you're going to be able to go to some self-help book and be able to control it is insane. You might think it's a good idea. It's insane. When God has said, you have the power to master it. Cain did not have to kill Abel. Cain could have come to God and said, you know what? I messed up in my offering. When he went to Abel, he could have been reconciled to his brother. But instead, Cain took Abel's life because of jealousy and anger. And he fed the sin that was crouching at his door. You are what you eat. You eat sin, you will produce a life of sin. You eat the scripture... And God will produce for you a fruitful life. We like to think that we can have our cake and eat it too. That you and I can come to church, look the part, dress the part, know a couple of scriptures, be able to recite John 3.16, write a check, stroke a check, serve on a committee, serve on a deacon body, whatever it might be. And when it's all said and done, that we're going to be okay. But we've not done anything about the sin that's crouching at the door. All the while we're thinking that we're going, to be over, we're going to be able to overcome this problem of sin. That we're going to be able to overcome the problems that plague us. But I want you to look at scripture. I, I, I dare you to find an example in scripture where a person of God was able to accomplish great things without him. I dare you to find an example where a person of God was able to avoid their sin, cancel their sin, flee from their sin without the power and work of God in their life. You won't find it. You'll find people that gave up on life. You'll find people that committed suicide. You'll find people that are downtrodden. You'll find people that are broken. But you're not going to find someone who has been redeemed, that has not been touched by the person of God. He is our only hope. He 
is solution. He is the solution. Alone. Alone. It's not a matter of how good we are. It's not a matter of how bad we are. It's not a matter of the good things that we do. Listen, the world is full of good people. The world is full of great people. The world is full of people that sometimes I'd rather spend time with than the church. But the difference between the world and the church is Jesus. That's the difference. That's the difference that makes all the difference in our lives for the temporal and the eternal. Sin is crouching at our door. It rears its head in many different ways and sometimes it's not obvious. Sometimes the enemy doesn't use diabolical opposites. That is, it's not a black and white game in which there is something that's definitely wrong and definitely right. Because I can ask you today, is it a sin to steal? And you would say, yes, it's a sin to steal. Very clear. I mean, that's a black and white issue. If only the devil would work with black and white. But the devil doesn't. The devil is shrewd. He is very, very sneaky. He's like a fox lurking at the door. And what he does is he offers us, he's sort of like, he's sort of like our teachers at school. How many of you like your teachers? You like your teachers? How many of you don't like your teachers? Have you ever had a teacher you didn't like? Yeah, there we go. How about adults? You ever had a teacher you didn't like? Yeah, I could name a couple. Let me tell you the teachers I didn't like. The teachers I didn't like were the teachers that thought they were the only ones, they were the only teacher that we had. You know what I'm talking about? The type that give you, they load so much work up and up and up that you can't begin to accomplish anything else. And, you know, I would go home and I would whine and I would complain, Mama, Daddy, I can't believe my history teacher gave me so much homework. My English teacher gave me so much homework. And then you know what? I went to college. And I realized that's life. You have to deal with it. You don't get to choose. You, you know, it, it's nice, you know, you complain. You complain about your teachers. But in the end... You still got to do the subject matter. In the end, you still are going to have a comprehensive exam. In the end, you still need to pass. And the goal of most teachers is to ensure that you pass not just by the skin of your teeth. Not that you have a letter grade or a number grade, but that you actually comprehend the subject that they're teaching. But the teachers that absolutely drove me batty were the ones that would give exams... And like, I liked, I, I like this, like, uh, who sailed the ocean blue in 1492? And choice A is Jesus. Choice B is Donald Duck. Choice C is Daffy Duck. And choice D is Christopher Columbus. I like that kind of test. I do. Because that ensures that I'm going to do well. And I like those kind of teachers. But I didn't like the type of teachers that gave tests where A is right, and, and B could be right, and gosh darn it, C is right. And then D is also right. And then I look at the direction and it says, but you pick the best answer. Best according to whom? The white man that's 60 years old that's writing the test? Or the student that's attempting to excel in school? I hate those kind of tests. Because half the time I pick a choice 
the choice would be wrong. Or it would be the best answer. That's what the devil tries to do. The devil really is in the details. Sometimes he's very defiant and it's very true who he is and he reveals himself. But many times the devil is A, B, C, and D. And you've got to make a decision about which choice is God's choice. And sometimes the devil presents himself as good and noble. And he presents his cause as good and noble and just. So how are we to discern? How are we to master the devil that's crouching at our door, seeking us to devour? How are we to master the sin that's always around us? How are we able to control it? You and I have got to be in his word. And I don't say that lightly. As I was sharing with someone earlier this morning, you know, sometimes you read scripture and you don't like what it says. You, you wish that you could just change a word. Just, 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 just tweak a little bit. Or maybe, you'll, and what you do is, uh, you'll do, and I've done this too, you'll run to a commentary or you'll run to another source to try to justify your cause or justify your action or justify your condition because you want to be able to be gracious. You want everybody to be a part of it. You want everybody to have the opportunity. You want everybody to be a believer. You want everybody to be in this club, so to speak. But ladies and gentlemen, it's just not scriptural. Not everybody is automatically in. No one is automatically out. But not anyone is necessarily in. You and I have choices. And when we make a choice, we suffer with the consequence of that choice. Cain made a choice. God warned him, sin is lurking, crouching at your door, master it. And then what does the Bible says it does? He goes out, has a conversation, takes Abel away. Cain kills Abel. There is a consequence to that sin as there is a consequence to every sin I spent a lot of time thinking about the consequence of sin how I want to be able to address sinners like me how I want to be saved through the power of Christ how I want to extend to them embrace them in the lens of the grace of Jesus and what does grace mean grace means that we don't get what we deserve it is a merciful act of God but grace doesn't mean that we won't have consequence because if you and I take away the consequence if you and I try to avoid the consequence we cheapen the grace in an attempt to make everybody in we pushed all of us out God's word is truth. When you make a decision on a test to choose answer A, there's a consequence to that choice. If it's the correct answer, the one that the score says is right, you get a check mark. But if it's wrong, you get an X. 
No matter how well you did on, on questions 1 through 10, if you miss number 2, you don't have any more hope other than a 90. No matter what grace can be extended, your grade can never be above a 90 if you got 10 questions and you miss one. So why do we want to make life any different? We want the grace of God, we want the love of God, but we don't want the consequence of our actions. Just being honest. But we have to take the good and the bad and the ugly. Scripture has so many examples of people of God that made bad decisions. Every single one of us makes bad decisions. I've made bad decisions. And those decisions have led to consequence. When I've sinned, I've had tremendous guilt. I've spent probably a fourth of my life regretting decisions that I've made. Some of you are in the same boat. Others of you made conscious decisions or things happened to your life. You didn't ask for the situation. You didn't ask for the cards that you were dealt. But you had to deal with them. And at some point, you made a decision about that card. You played that card or you held that card back. There's consequences to that. We can't avoid the reality of consequence. But what we can avoid the reality is eternal death. Grace is about reinstating you. Grace is about being found without blemish. Grace is about God providing us what we cannot provide for ourselves. It's about doing an act within us that we can't do in ourselves. You and I have got to master our sin. We cannot master that which we are enslaved to. John chapter 8 verse 34 tells us everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Look at your neighbor and say, you're a slave. Now despite an amendment to the Constitution, it does not mean that we're not slaves. There is slavery in this country. There is slavery worldwide. And the biggest form of slavery that, that the human race experiences is a slave to the enemy. It is a slave to sin. We cannot master that which enslaves us. The only way to master our sin is to accept the cure provided by the Son of God. Now let me tell you how ridiculous we are when we approach these circumstances. Let's say that you're having trouble and you feel that you've got some kind of medical something going on and so you make an appointment and you say, I'm going to see the infectious disease doctor. And so you, and, and they may shouldn't come to you, but they, we're just going to go for this example that they came to you. So you go to Dr. Jim and you say, I've got this issue going on and he, you know, he does all the bells and whistles, whatever he does. I, I won't, I'm not going to pretend to know what he does, but he comes back to the conclusion, he talks to an oncologist and he says, you have cancer. And, and, and discussing with the oncologist, he tells you, Dr. Jim tells you that after reviewing, uh, reviewing your history and reviewing what, when I talked to the oncologist, your cancer, you do have cancer, but, but your cancer is 100% curable. And oh, by the way, the treatment that we're going to give you has zero percent side effects. How many of you would not do that? Of course, I'd do it in a heartbeat. You can cure my cancer, no side effects, I'm all about it. But what would happen if you were the patient or a friend of yours was the patient and that patient said to Dr. Jim, you know, I think I'm just going to go down to the gym and um, I'm going to work on the treadmill or the elliptical, and um, 
I'm just going to wait this out, and I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to walk on the treadmill until I eradicate this cancer. What? You say, that person is ludicrous. That person is nuts. That person is crazy. But do we not do a similar thing when it comes to sin? <laughs> sin crouches at our door. For most of us, if we wanted to name the sin that defines our lives, we could name that sin whatever it is today. The sin that we just committed this morning, the sin that we committed last night, the sin that we committed this week, the one that's on our brain today. We could, we could name it and claim it for what it is. And God has said, master it. If you want to master it, how do you do that? You have a relationship with him, you surrender it to him. You're saved through him, you're cleaned and purified through him. Because you can't master what you're enslaved to. So you have to trust in Christ. He said, I'm the solution. The solution that he's offered is Jesus. But you say, no, I think, I think what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to pretend like it's not there and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pray more, I'm going to read my Bible more, I'm going to get myself in a Bible study group and that's going to fix it. Or I'm going to pick up a self-help book off the shelf. Listen, the solution to your sin problem, the solution to my sin problem is the Savior of this universe. There's no other way to defeat it. There's no other way to master it. You can try to rationalize. You can try to interpret scripture in your favor to nullify and say, well, this is no longer a sin. But in the end, you and I would be delusional. You can't change truth. You can't change God's word. God's word, and here's, here's the thing what I believe. I mean, and we think about it. If we believe that God's word is truth, if we believe that it's the most important book that's ever been compiled or written, if we believe that it is divinely inspired, if we believe that God through the work of the Holy Spirit had different individuals across different generations and time periods compose these scriptures. God wrote it through them. It's an inspired word. If we believe that and we believe it to be true, then why are we going to spend so much time debating over what's right and what's wrong? If we believe that God's hand has been in it all this process, it doesn't matter whether you're looking at a King Jimmy. It doesn't matter whether you're looking at an NIV. It doesn't matter whether you're looking at a Revised Standard Version or a New Revised Standard Version or a New Living Translation or Good News Bible or any other version of the Bible that you want to look at. If we believe it's God's Word, then it is truth for our lives. It speaks. It says what it says. Why do we want to back out of that? Why do we want to make room for situations and issues that have no room in the kingdom? I know that's a hard pill to swallow. And it, it's gut-wrenching for me because I love people. And I want them to be a part of God's plan. But people cannot be a part of God's plan when we are defiantly living lives in opposition to his word and to his truth. He wants us to be defined by him. Not by our situation. The Bible speaks. It's truth. It doesn't contain the truth. It is the truth. I remember when I was in college and a, a professor of mine said, and 
So many people were impressed by his puffed up words. I was just devastated. He said, if you're not reading the Greek New Testament, you're not reading God's word. And all I could think about is my 87-year-old grandmother who had died the year before. That didn't know any Greek. But yet, I have her Bible to this day. King James Version of the Bible. It's got snuff smudges in it and it's got underlinings in it. I mean, it smells like grandma. It smells like that perfumed tea rose. That's what it smells like. And suddenly I had a crisis of belief because this guy said, if you're not reading the original language, you're not reading the Bible. What does that say about God? That God is confined to a particular language, to a particular culture, to a particular time? No. God transcends the culture. God transcends language. God transcends us. Therefore, the impossibilities, the rationalizations that we make, God is so much above them. We define people oftentimes by their sin. God defines people by their potential. Not where you and I are today, but where you and I could be. God did not give up on Cain, even though that God in his foreknowledge knew that he would kill Abel. And God doesn't give up on you when sin crouches at your door and you choose to feed it rather than mastering it through the power of Christ. You and I, though, must not play with sin. We must attempt to master it. And the only way to master our sin is to accept the cure provided by the Son of God. And in this illustration with the doctor, no doctor is going to tell you that walking on a treadmill or, or, or doing an elliptical, no one's going to tell you that that's a bad thing. But all the physicians will tell you that if you're diagnosed with cancer and there's a certain treatment that running on a treadmill or elliptical, it's not going to cure your cancer. Running away from your sin, ignoring your sin, trying any other avenue other than the person of Jesus Christ is not going to eradicate the sin that's crouching at the door. So you and I have a choice. God has provided a way, a one hundred percent cure with no side effects yet what we say to him is well I'm gonna do it my way I'm gonna work it out on my terms and so we spend every waking hour either trying to polish the sin that's crouching at our door making it look prettier defining it as something that it's not calling the sin something else justifying it in some other means and having scripture to back up our justification but in the end ladies and gentlemen regardless of what we choose to proof text to use scripture for our purpose God's truth is still clear sin is sin it crouches at the door it is seeking to define who we are. It is, desires us. It desires our destruction. It wants to have its way with us. And God, all the while, all the time, is saying, I've got the cure. I've got the cure. Are we going to believe him? Are we going to trust him? God is not opposed to us working out our calling. He's not opposed to more prayer or more reading of Scripture. He's not opposed to memorization of Scripture. He's not opposed to us working out our spiritual lives. But without His cure, 
for the problem. Without accepting his cure for the problem, anything that we try to do to remedy sin is insane. That's just the truth. Every single one of our lives does not measure up on any given day. And we want to be gracious, we want to love people, we want to embrace people. Listen, embrace them, love them, shower God's love on them. But don't compromise your position on truth. Don't water down the gospel for the sake of giving an entry ticket. Because if you begin watering down the gospel in this way and that way, before long you have watered down every single fiber of what it means to have biblical truth and solid solutions for your and my life. And it, it's tough, ladies and gentlemen. It is tough, and I'll tell you why it's tough. It becomes even tougher when the sin that's crouching at your door affects more than you. When it's your family member or your mama or your daddy or your son or your daughter and suddenly you've got a crisis of belief and you have to discern where am I going to stand. Let me, be, let me help you here. Stand where Christ stood. Don't make exceptions for truth. But don't ever give up on those who make bad choices. Because God's not finished with them yet and God's not finished with you yet. Sin is crouching at the door, and he has a solution. I want to illustrate it in this way. This represents us. We look pretty good. Looks okay. Clear. Let's drink it. Nice. No, it's not moonshine. This represents the sin that's crouching at your door looks like sweet tea but i wouldn't want to drink it also looks like bad urine but that's a whole nother story the doctors can talk about that so when you and i sin we basically mess up the purity of who we are we become tainted now i can go to johnson city today to barnes and noble or books a million in the self-help section and I can get any number of books of how to fix this solution. How to, how to make it clear again. But unless I'm willing to do something about it, understanding, reading something, and applying it are two different things. Just like when you and I read the Word. You and I read the Word, but the question is, do we apply it? Do, do we make the word applicable to our lives and the people around us? Because here's God's 100% solution. God doesn't want you to throw away yourself. He doesn't want to throw you out. God wants to fill you up. And as He fills you up, He makes you clear again. He cleans you from within. And what we find is that our cup is far more, it, it is far more full with God working in our lives than it ever was without Him. He has the ability to cleanse us like we can't cleanse. His cure, 100% cured. No side effects. You and I can master our sin if we trust in Him. 
say, is it really that simple? It really is. And some of you who have believed and trusted in Christ have seen how simple it is. He doesn't want you to come looking a certain part. He wants you to come full of sin, just the way you are, so that he can clear you up. His cure, his solution, our choice. Choose wisely so that you might live. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for today and your word and your truth. Lord, in this world that we live, there are so many tempting parking places, so many opportunities that we take advantage of. Some of them lead us closer to you and some of them lead us further away. But every step is a choice that we make. There are consequences to every choice that we make. Some good, some bad. But we have to accept those consequences. Your grace saves us. Your grace frees us. Your grace forgives us. It washes the slate clean. But just as we've been purified, and just as Jesus who died on the cross, who died for our sins, who was resurrected, he still had the marks of the sin that he died on the cross for. And so it is with you and me. We will always have the marks. We will always have the scars of where we've been. But may those be a vivid reminder that God has brought us so far. God, help us to hold fast to your grace. May we not cheapen it or thwart it as a commodity to sell. But as the power of God and the work of Christ in our lives. God, as we come to this invitation. God, you've got business to do with the sentence at our doors. For some of us, we have tried to rename it. We've tried to package it in a different way. We've made it an integral part of our home. We just kind of whitewashed it, so to speak, in hopes that in the future the bushes and everything else will grow around it and no one will ever notice, but does not stop the reality of the fact that it's there. And today, Lord, you want to claim it for what it is and you want to take it for what it is. And you want to restore a life that's been broken, that's been scarred, that's been bruised. That's someone's testimony this morning. And if that's yours, I pray that you will surrender yourself to the Lordship of Christ and to the hope of the gospel that moves in our lives. For others of you, it may be a bad habit, it may be a relationship, whatever it might be, but God is dealing with you on a personal level and saying, I want you to surrender to me today. I want you to let me have control. I want you to be able to master what is plaguing you. And still others of us have been fighting a battle without the right tools. We've been going about it the wrong way. We've received the diagnosis. 
We know what we've been told is the cure, but we've tried other ways and other measures, and they failed every time. And every time we fail, we lose our ability to try again, even more so because we feel like we are being more and more defined by the failures that we've attempted. Success begins with Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's not done with you yet. And so for you as a child of God, as you come to recommit yourself to Him, this altar is open. For others who have come and to want to know more about being an integral part of First Baptist Church and our family, we are a broken family, we are a mired up family, we are a messed up family, we are a sinful family, but we serve a resurrected Jesus who loves us and is calling us to a better life. And we invite you to come journey with us as messed up as we are and as messed up as you are. We thank you for sharing your mess and your chaos with us. How is God speaking to you today? How is he moving in your heart, in your mind? Will you respond to him? Will you be obedient? Will you answer his call? Won't you come during this invitation? Come and receive the hope of Christ, the cure for your soul, the help that you need. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you're here this morning and God has moved in your life, moved in your walk, this altar's open. If you just want to come down here and pray for someone that you know personally that's struggling with whatever it might be and you want to surrender them at the altar, you do that. You be faithful to do that which God commands you to do. Honor Him with your decision. Honor Him with your life. Our cure is Him alone. His truth speaks. His word is clear. Are we going to apply it? Are we just going to go about our busy lives as we always have? He's here. He's waiting. Won't you come?